Welcome to What's So Funny, a comedy podcast where we talk about some of the most influential and controversial comedians from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Sit back, relax, and get ready to laugh. Here's your host, Dave Schwanson. Well, welcome to What's So Funny. I'm Dave Schwenson, and today I'm joined by Tom McGallis and Kelly Thulis. Hello, guys. Wow. wow. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I didn't even know I was going to be invited to this, so I'm pretty excited. Well, Thank the last you. minute thing, we weren't sure we wanted to hang out with you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thanks, Kelly, Dave. I appreciate it. <laughs> what have you been up to? Kelly, what are you up to? Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, hopefully doing some more Zoom shows. I've done a few of those already, and, and they're fun. They're different, but they're fun. Yeah, they really are different. I've been kind of following that. And it, it's real interesting. I mean, comedians will find a way to make people laugh. How is that, though, Kelly, when there's no audience really responding? I mean, it's not too much different than my other comedy shows. Ba-boom, <laughs> 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 Thank there you. We, go. <laughs> oh, we knew we'd get a laugh in here. Yeah. No, you uh, know what? A lot, of, a lot of them actually have audience members on the Zoom call. That way you still do have some audience feedback. So that's that's helpful because you do then you do get a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's different. But like I said, it's just figuring out the new thing. We're We're all very resilient as comedians. Well, Tom, I see you all the time on the internet with all your artwork and everything going on. You just haven't stopped. I mean, you're like mass producing things. It's great. Thank you, first of all. And secondly, you know, I'm always sort of alone in the studio. <laughs> so it, it didn't Aren't we change. all nowadays? Yeah, we, all, we are all alone. But, it, you know, it didn't change my whole gig much because I, I kind of always work alone. And, and now I occasionally put a mask on when, when, when weirdos come in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but before it used to be, you know, weirdos came in wearing masks. And this is no joke. I had this happen like, a, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago when somebody's wearing a mask. If you, re if you remember back then, anybody wore a mask, we thought was, what the, what is wrong? What are they doing? You know, mm -hmm. you know very few people <laughs> wore masks ever. And uh, a guy came in my studio once with it. And he, uh, he said, well, I just don't know what kind of environment this is. And I went, oh, man. One okay. of you wow. people. Okay. Yeah. 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 Art, art types <laughs> have germs. <laughs> anyway, so thank you. Yeah, been busy. Well, but this is exciting. You, Here we are doing this remotely. This is exciting, you know? Yeah. Well, I've gotten so used to doing everything remote. You know, with my comedy workshops I do for the improv comedy clubs, it's all gone on to uh, online workshops. Yeah. Which in some way, of course, we miss that personal touch being on stage and doing it in front of a big audience. But I've started working with comedians from around the entire country. Matter of fact, uh, I got someone on my workshop starts tonight who lives in Japan. Wow. Yeah, wow. California, Washington State, Florida. And it's just been a, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it, working with a whole different crew that I, I wouldn't get a chance to do. That has been one of the cool plus sides to all of this is that I've been able to do shows again and, and like some of the, my old comedy clubs in Los Angeles I hadn't performed in since I moved. I was able to perform with them again. Mm -hmm. I've been able to do a show that was like New York based and just all over. And then we've had audience members from all over, too. So it's been that's the cool thing. You get a, a wider exposure than I ever thought possible. Well, it's like being on tour without having to leave home. Yeah, it's like yeah. you don't even put on pants. It's great. <laughs> well, I don't want to go that far. Let's talk about our topic today, our subject today. Our comedy legend today is George Carlin. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm really excited about this show. When you mention George Carlin, anyone who's a fan of comedy knows exactly who he is. 
he just really changed the face of comedy back in the late 60s, early 70s. And when you see all these polls of the top comedians, whether it's Comedy Central, Time Magazine, whatever, it's always Carlin and Richard Pryor are the top two. Maybe Lenny Bruce gets thrown in there. It's those guys. And we're talking about one of them today, George Carlin. There aren't a lot of legends. You, I mean, as you mentioned, there's that the top tier and he sort of took it because he focused on stand-up, don't you think, guys? Oh, he, yeah. He, yeah. He really decided, this is what I am. It kind of impressed me that he said, this, you know, yeah, I'm a, I'm a writer who performs his writing. I'm a stand-up. That's what I am. He made 130 appearances on The Tonight Show and produced 23 comedy albums. Wow. And he wrote three books, and he appeared in several movies. So, I mean, he just was constantly, constantly working. Is that a record for The Tonight Show? That's, I mean, 120? That's got to be close. That's a lot. And the thing is, too, he was also a co-host. I mean, you know, he would substitute host when Johnny Carson would take off. George Carlin would be the host. I think at one point he said his success was like doing what you love, doing it well, and then being recognized for it. So it, it's kind of like he did all that, you know? It's, I don't know. It's kind of, he's an interesting dude. <laughs> he really is. And he really worked hard at his craft. And I, I want to say this because, and I'm not going to say I was real personal friends with George Carlin, not at all. I got to meet him and work with him, and I've interviewed him for two of my books. <laughs> and oh, I, wow. I want to go on the record as saying he was a really nice guy. I just found him to be helpful. My books help like young comedians, how to write comedy, how the comedy business. This is kind of a fun story. All right. So back in the, in the late 80s, I was managing and, and booking talent for the New York Improv Comedy Club, the original club on West 44th Street over in Hell's Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And one of our regular comics, a guy who was favorite, like he's also a legend. His name was Bob Altman. He was known as Uncle Dirty. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'd always said the best shows at the improv were always at the bar <laughs> rather than on the stage because they all hung, they all hung out. So if Uncle Dirty came in, it'd be like Norm from Cheers, okay? <laughs> I remember one night I was standing by the the my manager's stand or whatever I had in New York, and Uncle Dirty came in the door and he says, Dave, he says, I want you to meet my best friend, George. I turn around George Carlin to stand there. Uncle Dirty says, he stole my act. Because <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Dirty was this guy in the early 70s. We had his albums hanging up at the, at the wall down there. He had the long hair and the beard. Looks like John Lennon on Abbey Road. And he wore the bib overhauls and he was Uncle Dirty. And there was Carlin with, he grew his beard and had his hair. And Carlin didn't take any offense. They were best friends. And he just wow. was this nice guy. And said, hello. He asked me, he said, Uncle Dirty says, George has like five or seven minutes. He wants to work out on stage. Can you get him on stage tonight? I'm like, are you kidding me? It's George Carlin. Uh, Yeah. So I I think the the comic who was on stage, I signaled him to get off. He's giving me a look like, why do I got to get off? I just got on stage. He comes back. He goes, what the heck's going on, Dave? He looks over and sees George Carlin standing next to me. He goes, oh, "Oh, okay. You got bumped, man. (laughs) Yeah. And the part of this story too is Carlin had the sniffles. Okay. And I tried to make a joke about drugs, okay? Because Carlin had that reputation. And he was like, he didn't get offended. He says, no, 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 Dave. He says, I have allergies. I, I got these allergies. I'm sniffling. And he had a little box of Kleenex in his back pocket. And he pulled it out and he blew his nose. He says, you know, he just has allergies. I said, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, he went on stage to do his seven minutes. And he took his notebook up. I always say this for new comics. Don't be afraid to take your notebook on stage if you're working on new material. Carlin went up with his notebook. He's taking notes where he would do a joke and the audience would laugh. He goes, okay, okay, I think I can get a better laugh than that. I'm going to do that joke again. I'm going to try a different punchline. Oh, that's hilarious. You do the punchline again? 
Yes, he would do the joke again with a different punchline or different wording. Oh, my God. He would judge which one got the better laughs. And that's what would go on his HBO special. We saw we were able to watch him put this together on stage. And he did. He treated a great club like the improv. He treated that was his open mic. The word got around New York City to the other comedy clubs that I had the improv. We had George Carlin on stage. So all these comics I would never normally see because they would go to the other clubs. All of a sudden they were standing in the back of the showroom at the improv watching George Carlin. The best part about this story is when he finished his seven minutes, he announced to the audience, he said, I was just getting that ready for a TV special. So that's all I want to try out. But the next thing you know, he sneezed. He took out his Kleenex box, his Kleenex in his back pocket. He sneezed and blew his nose. He did 20 minutes on the Kleenex. (laughs) (laughs) And it was hysterical. It was, I just always remember this. My gosh, what a, I mean, he's one of the few, I will call a comic genius. Yeah. But he did 20 minutes on this box of Kleenex. It was in his back pile, a bag of Kleenex, whatever it was. Wow. Like his laboratory. He was like, yes. you know, this is where I'm going I'm to work it out, test yes. it on you people. Yeah, that's, well, that's uh, his early, when he was doing the early TV stuff, I remember he, him saying that he didn't even test his material out live. He would do it on television first. He goes, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm going to try it on TV. For, if it works there, it'll work in the live act. It was doing it backwards, which is kind of risky, huh? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, like my son, who's, you know, like, you know, he's just young. They're all in early 20s. And they, uh, it said that that's the Carlin they loved. The mm-hmm. angry 80s Carlin, you know, the older, <laughs> you know, even even into the 90s. And, and uh, you know, the, the just that, the angry bitchin' Carlin. And I thought yes. that's kind of interesting that he appealed to, to a wide range of people. And a lot of the younger people just dug that version of Carlin. Not so much the, uh, you know, hippy-dippy weatherman, that whole thing, yeah. the early stuff, which, yeah, man, you know, to be fair, that that was TV at the time, you know? I mean, it's, you know. The, it was typical, the Ed Sullivan show, Hollywood Variety talent, shows, you know, you The know? Merv Griffin show. You know, you watch some of those things. You could see he was a competent comedian. I mean, you know, the Las Vegas type and this and that, but, you know, not really anyone that stood out, I don't think, com- compared to the other ones that were at that time. And matter of fact, I look back at some of his stuff in those days. He was most famous for what, the Indian Sergeant? That was the first that bit, bit mm-hmm. they, he did on TV. Did you guys know that? That that he That's all he had was that bit. Yeah. I did not realize he, that was his very first. Yeah, he did that on, on Parr, the Jack Parr show, the first one, right? That yeah, was his I, first appearance, maybe with Jack Parr, and he only had that bit. <laughs> you know this he rewrote the bit and made it for pirates yeah he oh, just he, he just changed he says it, it was the same <laughs> the same uh, fish out of water scenario just like, just changed it from you know indians to pirates yeah yes, exactly and you look back and i'll be honest with you right now it's the 60s so you, it's, it is what it is not exactly politically correct no by yeah. today's standards no you, um, yeah you know, I'm I'm kind of like uh, kind of shocked when you follow the evolution of that bit too. And the other thing, also, if um, now we're going way back, so this is for the comedy historians and the people who want to go on YouTube and look around. The Smothers Brothers television show, yeah. very political at the time, very um, controversial at the time, and they brought on George Carlin to do the Indian Sergeant bit, and they even threw <laughs> a, a headband at him with a fly, with a feather in it that he wore. Oh, yeah. wow. pretending to be, I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, the, that bit really makes fun of the the trope of the Native American that you see in the films of the time, because Westerns were just wildly popular during that time. So it makes fun mm-hmm. of that, and it makes fun of his own experience in the military, which he did You're not right. have a pleasant military experience from what I've heard. 
But yeah, so that's what it really makes fun of. But even so, it's still not politically correct, just as those films aren't politically correct anymore. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. It's a piece of the it, at times. It's what it was at that time, mm-hmm. just like you explained with the movies and things like that. But and it, it killed. Also the showed, bit killed. Yeah. You know, was, oh, yeah. yeah. Everyone said it was their favorite bit. That's what he was known for. But yeah. it begins the evolution of mm-hmm. George Carlin. Because, I mean, this was around 1969. He was still wearing the suit. He was still clean shaven. Yeah. He had the nice haircut. He was appealing to the corporate audience, the older crowd in Vegas, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, then he released his album, AMFM. FM and AM was the the name of the album, and it was released in January 1972. And yeah, it just it really took off. That was the one that on one side he was um, the AM side, he was more cleaner, yes, clean cut comedy. And on the FM side, that's when he kind of released his his raunchy persona that we all know him for, sort of that baby yeah. step into it, and it yeah. won him a Grammy. And you know, the reason I think he made that switch, I mean, everything that was going off on the different personas. Because, you know, he was very influenced by Lenny Bruce, okay, and, and expressing himself. And he was constricted by, you know, the network because he did a lot of television. So there were a lot of things he couldn't say on television. And with the counterculture going on, the war protests at the time, civil rights, everything going on. And he was a more youthful. He might have been a little bit older than the hippies. But, you know, he's the same age as, I guess, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, those guys. I mean, they were all mm-hmm. making statements. And he just kind of fell into that. And he really became the comedy equivalent of that. You know, the outspoken counterculture guy, like Bob Dylan of comedy. Let's call it what it is. Well, it's also a, a chance to kind of be your, truthful to yourself. Instead of doing, you know, as we mentioned, a lot of the comics at the time were doing cookie cutter material. Guys were interchangeable. Mm-hmm. It's like you look at one guy and you're like, oh, they all seem about the same. They're all doing about the, you know, it's, it's the, the mother-in-law jokes, the, you know, the suburban jokes, the whatever. You know, everybody, everybody could do it. It's equivalent of maybe airline jokes now or something like, you know, fast food jokes. Or It's like, uh, but what's personal to you? And I think the artist in him said, I got things I need to say about the government, well, about society. And you, and you, Tom, you, Tom, as an artist, you can relate to that. You have to express yourself in your work. And, you know, yeah. that's what Carlin really, you know, again, like Richard Pryor, George Carlin, you know, Lenny Bruce, these guys were really stepping out on the on the edge doing this at that time in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, Carlin lost a lot of money, a lot of gigs, a lot of, you know, the, the corporate audiences that he would have for his stuff. 
all new material, man, reinventing himself and, and also letting go of that success. Think of that. Like you, you're really successful. You you really have a brand and you're like, you know, screw this brand. I think he realized that he was between 40 year olds and 20 year olds. I think at one point he said, you know, here, here's these, these young people that had these, you know, anti-war and all these ideas. And here's their parents that I'm appealing to. And I'm like, wait a minute. I, I don't, I want to, this is, this is my, pe- these are my people. The, mm-hmm. You know, I'm 30, I'm right between them. This is who I want to appeal to. So I think there was a conscious effort to go, this is my new audience. These are the people. Yeah. Well, he looked at comedy as an, out, an expressive, you know, outlet. And, you know, that can be traced back to like 1960, 1961. He was with Lenny Bruce when Lenny got busted for obscenities. I can't remember yeah, where it was. right. And the police came on and Carlin was there and they wanted him to testify. And he says, I don't remember hearing anything bad. And they threw him in the police cart with Lenny Bruce. Oh, wow. And that's something, man. In the jail. Yeah. But, you know, his, his early influences were not Lenny Bruce. It was like Mort Saul, Jonathan Danny Winters. Kay. Danny Kaye. Yeah, was Danny his like, big role model, which is yeah. interesting. His acting, right? Danny Kay is a pretty wild character. I mean, for <laughs> anyone who doesn't quite know who he is, he's he had his own show. He's I know him primarily from the film White Christmas. Yeah. But yeah, he's a pretty clean cut, wearing suits kind of guy of the 50s and 60s. You know, it's not when you think of, I, I was shocked when I found out. I was like, Danny Kay was his role model? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he took it so seriously too. I mean, you watch his bits. I mean, I'll go right into the, let's get right into the meat of this. The seven words you can't say on television. Mm. Come on. What I mean, that bit. was ni- what, mm-hmm. 1971, 1972. Classic bit, though. Nobody talked like that. I mean, Lenny Bruce, I mean, you had the anti-war movement. You had the late 60s. You had people protesting and all this. But you still couldn't really cross that line with what those words are. And yeah. there George Carlin comes out and says, here are the words. But the thing is, it's such a clever, well-thought-out, well-written bit. And it's simple. I mean, you're, you listen to this go, why didn't I think of that? You know, yeah, it's so oh, yeah. true. It's, and yeah, we can't really t- we can't talk about the words. I mean, we can't, we're can't not say allowed, it. Literally, we're not allowed to on this on this it, podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you think about it, it's almost genius to put that on an album. Like, I got to get this album and hear it. What are the seven yeah. words you can't say? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is dirty. You know, and it w- it was being played on college campuses all around the country, just like you know, again, you know, the, the anti war, you know, demonstrations, things going on. You know, he was. He was the comedy spokesperson for that stuff. From then on, you watch him evolve right up until his, I mean, he passed away, what is like 2008, 2009, something like that. And just months before he passed away, he filmed another HBO special. Still working. Yeah, he was still working and it was still angry. (laughs) He was still (laughs) thought out. It was worded correctly. And, you know, he was one of those guys, like I said, when he would go on stage and I worked with him a number of times, it wasn't just that one time in New York, you know, even in Los Angeles. One of the coolest things, guys, is uh, f- for me to just remember Carlin was he was the first host of SNL. Oh, yeah. The, vi- mm-hmm. the very first host. And at the time, Lauren Michaels said he was going to revolve hosts like mm-hmm. Lily Tomlin, Richard Pryor. And mm-hmm. then uh, and George Carlin said, again, I don't feel comfortable being in sketches. Right. I just want to do little monologues. And Lauren yeah. Michaels says, yeah. And then he was on again in 84, but... Later, he said, I was never invited back to any reunions, any any tapings, any not even to be in the audience and like get up in a tuxedo and go, hi, it's me, George, nothing. <laughs> he, he goes, and he never understood why. And then later he said, you know, I think it was because 
I was so blitzed on cocaine all week, <laughs> <laughs> like hardcore coke. It goes, even now, I watched my SNL in 75 and see me grit my teeth going, man, I was so flying on coke. <laughs> I think, so, you know. I think they it was all the time. were. I think they all were. At that time, yeah, yeah, they all were. Well, he got he got arrested in Milwaukee. He was just performing, and that was in 72, and he was saying obscenities, and he got arrested for that. It was during a <sighs> summer fest, and so six cops pulled him off, and they didn't realize he actually had cocaine before he caught <laughs> yeah. them. They just wow. pulled him off for obscenities. He did not consider himself to be a dirty comic. It's interesting. Yeah, it was a part of the language that he used mm. and it emphasized, he actually talked about emphasizing it. He said he can get in front of an audience. He said, if he's doing a bit and he looks like they're maybe not paying as, as much attention as they should, or they didn't seem as interested, he would drop an obscenity in it. I'm not going to tell you, he gave me the word. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, I would say that he said it was like a speed bump. He said, you can see everybody's heads bounce up. Interesting. And, and look at him. He wow. says, then he would have their attention again. And that's how he used it. And it was very interesting. That's so important because, like, I mean, really, like, George Carlin, I feel like that album, Class Clown, where um, the seven dirty words that you can't say on television, that's where that track comes from, is from Class Clown. And I feel like that's the album that it's like once you do an open mic, they just hand you that at the door. You know, it's like that's the every every comedian is required listening of, of that album. And that's how everybody knows George Carlin. But, like, it, it's interesting to hear the fact that he was so purposeful when using swear words. I think mm -hmm. a lot of times, because it, it, it's done in a way that's not you, that, that's not thought about, you know? And I think a lot of times I'm guilty of it too. I'll just throw things in there on, on sets, not even really realizing it. And it's very fascinating to hear that him being who he is, he actually purposely knew when to put it in. It wasn't just there because that's how he talked. It was there because he's like, all right, now it's time to ramp up my set. Yeah, I'm losing them. Put this there. You know, he was so meticulous with words. It's very interesting. Strategic. It, I mean, it wasn't mm -hmm. like... Strategic, he, yeah. It wasn't like Richard Pryor, who was kind of a rhythm. That was his mm -hmm. rhythm and, and part of his general dialogue rhythms. You look at when he teamed up with Jack Burns... They uh -huh. were both working in radio at the time. They became a team and then drove to Los Angeles together to try it in L.A. as a team. But he said that their act was so filthy because <laughs> yeah. it was developed in, a, in, in coffee shops. But he said our act was so filthy and just way off, you know. And But when we got to L.A., we thought, we better clean this up. And they did. And they were sitting there watching Jack Parr three weeks into their career and they said, that's someday we're going to, you know, they were sort of doing riffing on how they were going to be talking on the panel with Jack Parr. And he said, and then 10 months later, we were on that show. So within 10 months, they had skyrocketed and made that a dream. Wow. He said, we had a manager in four weeks in L.A. Lenny Bruce had seen them and said, these guys are great. And they got a manager or an agent based off of Lenny Bruce seeing them. Within 10 months, we were on that show. Yeah. They were good. They were good. They were good. And they had this experience working together. They were best friends. They were roommates, Jack yeah. Burns and George Carlin. Mm -hmm. And so even when they're on the radio, and again, I mean, it's another story Carlin told me, because when he started on the radio, the general manager told him, and he was a DJ, just like he makes fun of in W-Y-N-O, W-I-N-O, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the way he was. He was probably and a he, good DJ, you know? Yeah. And yeah. the thing was, he told me, he said the station manager told him, you know, you're a naturally funny guy, but some days you're not going to feel funny on the air. 
He says, what I suggest you do is carry a notebook with you. And every time you think of something funny, every time you find a subject, a topic that you think is funny, write it down. And that way you can always have something to talk about on the radio. So Carlin told me he started doing that. And he told me he called it his arsenal. Wow. That was his arsenal. (laughs) So from right from when he got out of the Air Force in the 50s, that's what he was doing. And I can assume Jack Burns was doing the same thing. Yeah. They were just writing stuff, writing. And he just never stopped writing. This guy was a writing machine. I think that's the key, don't you think, Kelly? I mean, you know, you being a comedian on stage and you got to write, right? Yes. Even if you're writing on stage, but it's it's all about material, constantly working on stuff, right? And the more you work on it, the better you get. You know, actually, it was really interesting, too, just going back to what you're saying. Like, Lenny Bruce didn't just say, wow, they're great. Like, he actually said that yeah, there's a quote from him somewhere saying that, like, at the time, comedy really wasn't groundbreaking, and George knew it, and he decided to go into a different direction. I mean, so that's just, it's so interesting to have, like, Lenny Bruce be like, I recognize, game recognizes game, you know? It's like he just recognizes yeah. right there. He's like, ooh, George sees what's going on. It's not groundbreaking. And then he was a big player in making comedy groundbreaking. George had a history of heart issues, you know, three years of heart attacks and all kinds, you know. And But if he didn't, you know, his brother's still alive in his 80s, 90s. I think George would, I, I don't know if he'd, he'd be on Netflix. He probably would have a Netflix thing right now instead mm-hmm. of the HBO and, and doing probably still great stuff, I would think. Yeah. As an artist, I think he was continually growing. And he said that at one point is, you know, an artist is always looking to grow and to change and to evolve. I can do better on the next painting. I can do better on the next. If that's in you, you're always going to want to grow, even if you're, well, as long as you're breathing, right? And that's you right. can stand and think you're going to try to get better and go, even if you're 90, oh man, this next joke's going to be the best. Yeah. This next bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you hope. That's what we're all aiming for, right? Yeah, 90 years old. Dave, <laughs> you're going to write your best book at 95, Dave. <laughs> Kelly, you're going to be 103. You're going to be killing the stand-up. <laughs> I'll be in a wheelchair, but I'll be killing. You'll be killing. Right. And that's the story of George Carlin. I think we've come to the end of our time here. We have? We definitely have. I got a, I got a text message from our producer, Sarah. Where is she? Moving. She's she's uh, muted. She says she's <laughs> muted, but she says she we got to wrap it up. It's like yeah. too much good no, stuff. No, she doesn't text one. me. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I'm going to sign us off right here. As always, it's been a pleasure talking with both of you. I just enjoyed talking about George Carlin, just a legend in the comedy business. We're going to say goodbye to Tom McGallis. Hey, bye, guys. I love you guys. Keep positive. How about yes. that? How about and that? And then Kelly Thulis will say goodbye. Oh, goodbye. Yeah. I wish I had an inspiring thing to say, too. Keep positive also. How about that? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we'll say, save that feeling for the next time, okay, the next show. And I'll say I'm Dave Schwenson. I've just had a blast talking with you guys. I hope it's you enjoyed the fun. program. This it's has been, been fun, uh, yeah. What's So Funny. And until next time, keep laughing. What's So Funny is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya, producer Sarah Wilgroup, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.